I'm oh. Emma. Um, and welcome to Limelight, the Falcon Film Podcast. Um, unfortunately, um, Annie and Mason can't join us today. So it's just me, but I'm going to also be joined by our guest, first guest in a while, um, Professor Overstreet. Thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, today, we're going to be talking about um, like directors in movies and kind of some of our favorites and just stuff like that. I'm just I'm just curious to, you know, first um, ask you kind of like who are some of your favorite directors? Um, so I was sort of browsing this morning because I knew this question was coming. And I think I probably have more hard copy films by Spielberg than anybody. But I wouldn't say he's my favorite director. He's probably the director that's had the biggest influence on my life mm -hmm. because I grew up, you know, watching... Um, well, for the first Spielberg movie I saw was Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then I went back and saw Close Encounters, and e and then I saw E.T. when it came out, and, you know, he's still making movies today, so that's, that's a lot of movies. Um, but those, those early 80s Spielberg movies didn't just influence me, I mean, they, they have probably had as much or more influence on American movie making than, than any director, because, I mean, you think about Stranger Things... The popularity of Stranger Things on yeah. TV, that is, that whole series is a tribute to Spielberg, you know. Um, um, the National Treasure movies, or just recently The Lost City with Sandra Bullock, that's, there's a lot of, a lot of Raiders of the Lost Ark in that. So he, mm -hmm. he is, he has his, uh, his DNA in just about uh, everything that's popular. Marvel is full of Spielberg stuff. So I'd say he's probably the most influential. So my favorite, my favorite director of all time is a Polish filmmaker named Krzysztof Kieślowski, who doesn't just make films in Poland, but he started as a documentarian, very interested in issues of social justice, uh, very distrustful of, um, of, of the government there, but also very distrustful of Western influences and capitalism. Um, and that makes him sound very political and dry and boring, but he makes the most beautiful films because he learned that he was not going to be free to say what he wanted to say as a documentarian. So he started telling stories and he left and he started making those, making those films outside of his country so he would have complete creative freedom. And so he made a trilogy called the, the Three Colors Trilogy. And the first film in that, uh, Three Colors Blue, starring Juliette Binoche, uh, is um, these days I'm saying that's my all-time favorite film. It's it's a, one I've probably seen 25 times. Um, it's one of the most important films in the film and faith class that I teach at SPU. It's a film that for me shows how the power of cinema is is different than the power of storytelling or the power of writing or the power of just photography. It's it's the juxtaposition of images that that starts suggesting things the way images in poetry suggest things. And that becomes a really beautiful film about the world's need to embrace really a gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation and hope, even though sometimes that seems impossible with the histories of, of hardship and grudges that go on between nations. And somehow it tells that story with this very intimate story of a composer's wife who loses her husband and daughter in a car crash and tries to put all that pain behind her by just sort of hitting reboot on her life 
and realizes that real freedom is only going to come if she can face all of that pain, forgive her husband for things he did before he died, and finish his music for him. And then over the course of the movie, there's some interesting mystery questions about whether or not maybe she was writing the music all along and he was just the public face of all this. Um, but it becomes a story about choosing to carry your pain instead of deny it. Choosing to move through it instead of just try to ignore it and go on to something else. And that, that true freedom does not come from running away from your pain, but from pushing through it and, and facing your fears. Um, the music is absolutely beautiful. Uh, students, I often grade your papers while listening to the music from that movie. Um, maybe that maybe it influences me to be more forgiving. I don't know. Uh, but I also think it's the greatest performance by an actress I've ever seen. Juliette Binoche doesn't have a lot of lines in this movie, but she tells this very complicated story just with her face, just with the subtlest body language. And... Um, yeah, if that sounds at all interesting to you, uh, next winter quarter, sign up for Film and Faith, because we'll be watching that film with a great sound system in Eaton Hall, uh, along with 14 others from around the world. Yeah, movie to me uh, at all. So, so, yeah, uh, so, I haven't I haven't seen Eternals, so, yeah, I wouldn't... I don't, I don't think I've seen any of her movies, so... It's, yeah, well, I wouldn't start with that. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see The Rider, and you want to see Nomadland, which won Best Picture a couple of years ago. Uh, and she's only the second woman to ever win Best Director at the Oscars. Um, I'm a big fan of Jane Campion, too, who won Best Director this year. It's the first time they've ever had women win Best Director two years in a row, so that was a nice step forward. Uh, and Sofia Coppola is pretty great, too. Um, Lost in Translation with Bill Murray and... and with Bill Murray and Black Widow, trying to trying to speak the language, you know, of the Marvel movie-going audience, uh, is is really, really great. I also had a really difficult time with this question because I realized, uh, I feel like growing up, I never really had like specific directors that I would like latch onto. I don't know. I would just watch the movies that were available to me and I wouldn't think too much about like, you know, who exactly was directing it. I yeah. felt like I was supposed to um, like um, Peter Jackson because he did the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, yeah. um, but those are the only movies that I've seen him direct that I've liked. Um, like, not 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 a fan of the Hobbit adaptation, but that's, that's a whole other oh, conversation. Boy. Yeah, it really um, is. <laughs> yeah, so like... When I, when I was like preparing for this, I was just kind of trying to rack my brain. I'm just like, what directors like do yeah. I really like? Um, and I guess the one that I kind of came upon, like it's hard, it's hard to say um, he's my favorite, but he's one that I, like whose work I've just gotten really interested in recently is um, Mike Flanagan, who did um, The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, which is yeah. my favorite. That is my favorite series of all time. Wow. Um, and that kind of spurred me to check out some of his movies. Literally everything that he does is horror. Mm -hmm. And more even more depressing than I expected. So I mean, as <laughs> as as you can imagine, it was quite the um trip for me. Like because I, I just decided to go chronologically through his um filmography. And the first two movies, um, Absentia and Oculus 
both end very depressingly. Um, so that was that was quite the experience. But I I would say right now that's probably again one of the directors that I'm most interested in because I've just I've recently gotten in, interested in like a certain kind of horror. I'm not at all into like um, the like more like gory like slasher type. I like kind of more like psychological stuff. Sure, me stuff too. That deals with a lot of like you know like the deep like heavy emotion, which I think he does mm -hmm. um, really well. It was really interesting. Just, I, I don't know. I find it such a fascinating experience because this is the first time that I've like done this, like actually like just focusing on a certain director and watching through basically all the stuff by that director because you mm -hmm. really pick up on a lot of common themes. Mm -hmm. That was something that I found, one thing that I found really interesting. It felt like there was a, there are a lot of themes in his movies of like someone, um, you know, being too confident like playing trying to use some sort of like you know bit great like you know power like evil and thinking like they can do it and like they'll be the ones that will you know come out fine and then it goes very poorly for them yeah yeah, yeah. um i just i don't know i i just found it fascinating to kind of like look in, and see some of those reoccurring themes mm -hmm. but just in general um, i don't really have a lot of like specific directors that i can identify and be like yeah. yeah, that's a person whose work I really, you know, like and really enjoy their directorial style, except for like Mike Flanagan. Well, Flanagan is interesting because, uh, and I, I should qualify this by saying the only, th only thing by him I've seen, because I, I rarely have time for a whole TV series because I'm always chasing movies. You know, if I, if I commit to a series of, that has like, more than one season, then my the calculator in my head starts going... Wow, this is 15 movies worth of time. Um, but um, I have seen Doctor Sleep. Um, his that's like his, the one that I haven't seen. Yeah, that's his sequel to The Shining, mm -hmm. which I have mixed feelings about. I mean, it was an inter very interesting movie on its own, but as a sequel to The Shining, I that's another that's another whole conversation. But he's um, a director who's getting a lot of attention in television, which is rare because uh, most television series, you know, a there'll be like a big name director who does the pilot episode or just a couple mm -hmm. of episodes. Yeah. And then they'll hand it over to other people. And the storytelling drive of television is how do you constantly keep people coming back? And that really limits in some ways what a storyteller can do. A storyteller doesn't get to shape a story around the themes and the questions that they want to explore they have to build a platform that is going to be sustainable over a long period of time and that is going to constantly surprise an audience that has shifting loyalties and interests. And um, so it's, it's, a, it's impressive. It's to Flanagan's credit that he has invested so much in the work he's doing so that his vision really comes through. I mean, I heard more about Midnight Mass last year than almost any other television series. And so it's way up on my list of series I will watch when I have time. Um, but also to make psychological horror um, compelling on television for a large audience. I mean, people who don't like horror were coming to me and saying, I don't like horror, but Midnight Mass is great. So that's really intriguing to me. I like horror if it's, it's thoughtful. Mm -hmm. You know, Alien is a science fiction film, but I think of it as a horror film and probably my favorite um, when it comes to like, um, you know, serial killer movies, Silence of the Lambs is a great work of art. Um, um, but then there's there's far more psychological horror. I mean, you get into the stuff of David Cronenberg, um, 
I, I really admire a lot of his stuff, although I wouldn't say I enjoy it. <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, Robert Eggers, of course, is becoming a bigger and bigger name, um, not just in horror, but in like really troubling historical storytelling. I mean, I just saw The Northman, but The Witch is, pro the witch is probably the scariest. I mean, when we talk about like being seriously troubled, The Witch is probably the scariest movie I've ever seen because I actually believe a lot of the stuff that that movie is about. Um, it's not just, you know, make-believe. It's not, it's not zombies busting out of the ground. It's, it's about spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and the dangers, what can happen to people when they, when they isolate themselves from society. So, um, um, Scott Derrickson, the director that made, um, well, Dr. Strange, of course, but, but, um, more importantly and more personally for him, Sinister and the Exorcism of Emily Rose argues that horror is a really essential genre for people of faith. Um, especially for Christians because the symbol of our faith is the cross and the cross is an instrument of torture. Um, <laughs> so you've got all these people, you know, with this nice, nice little cross jewelry around their neck. And it's like, yeah, you remember what you're wearing. I mean, that was a Roman instrument of torture, one of the most painful ways to die in the world. Um, so we, um, faith comes from the radical desire, the, the radical choice to have hope in the face of the worst imaginable things. And... Um, it sounds to me, at least from the buzz I was hearing, that Midnight Mass actually wrestles with some of that stuff. So, so yeah, that's interesting. I'd really love to interview Flanagan. He sounds like an interesting guy. Oh yeah, like I, I haven't. That's I'm, I'm actually been watching um, Midnight Mass like just recently um, with one of my friends. Um, and yeah, it, it is like I've only seen the first episode, so I've only really seen kind of all of his big like you know set up to that but it is already like setting up all these really fascinating topics of again like yeah it plays a lot with like you know faith and horror but um yeah it is interesting to me also how hill house like that was his first um of these like series like the first one that he made that i think was my first horror anything i for some reason, I just assumed about myself that I wouldn't like horror um, because, you know, it's spooky or whatever. And half of what I watched was Marvel movies. Um, and, but like, I I actually knew what was going to happen before I saw it because the, the thing, the whole like thing that got me into watching it was because I watched a, I watch a lot of like video essays on um, YouTube. And I watched one that was really like a deep dive into it and also talked about his um, direction of it specifically. I'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, my favorite like episode that just the the style of the cinematography is so good. But um, the reason that I realized like, oh, this might actually be something that I want to um, watch and see for myself was like hearing about this story. like. The, the horror, it's like, it's a part of it and, you know, plays into, you know, these character stories and like what they're going through, but it's about um, those characters and their grief and this like tragedy that they're going through because um, for people who don't know, the plot of it is basically, it's about this family um, who used to live in a haunted house 
um, and kind of dealing with they it weaves in the past of that when they lived in that house and kind of what they went through there and the present them dealing with the repercussions of that um, the death of their sister and so there's all of this really like you know deep um, kind of tackling of the subject of grief through the mm -hmm. lens of horror which I really love but also to get more into kind of like the directorial style of it my favorite episode is I think it's like the sixth one um that's called two storms i just what was done with that episode by like flanagan and all of the crew is super cool it's filmed almost entirely in a series of long shots like there are mm. only a couple like you know like shot reverse shot um and then cuts and stuff like that and so it feels like you're really grounded in this yeah. moment with the family because yeah. um the main like where it starts is with um like the family the siblings and their dad like at their sisters like wake um and so you really feel like you're in this moment with them watching things kind of unravel in real time you also it very seamlessly even will you know doing the whole thing with the long shots like also does the same thing that the show does and transitions back in time and so you see these like parallel times of the reason it's called two storms is because it's you know two times that there's a big storm but also you know emotionally sure. um and i don't know i just think it's super cool what um he did with that like in that very specific stylistic choice to convey grief and mm -hmm. i feel like he does that with a lot of the things he works on and i think that's kind of what really draws me to um some of like his media long takes are a powerful thing and um not many people do them well and not many people have the ambition to do them people tend to assume that faster takes and more takes is more exciting but every time there's a cut on some level it's reminding the viewer that you're not in the real world you're watching a movie mm -hmm. and a long take gives you more of a chance to sort of settle into a setting and look around the way your eye looks around the way your eyes look around at a real place and the longer you go without a cut the the more something in you that has been conditioned by media keeps waiting for that cut to happen and it's it's sort of like holding your breath um you just keep you know it's, it's like when when do when am i going to be released from this place so if they develop tension in a long take that is one of the most powerful things cinema can do is it it increases the illusion on some level that this is really happening um and that's because on some level it is i mean the actors are all there together and they're playing out the scene without a cut um, um so so many of my favorite directors are, are great at long takes robert altman um who made the movie Gosford Park, which was basically the template for every episode of Downton Abbey or Bridgerton or any kind of big historical soap opera like that. Um, Gosford Park is written by Julian Fellows, who is the, the writer, the, the visionary behind Downton Abbey. And he um, wrote these really long, complicated scenes with 15 or 20 different characters in one big, you know, mansion. Just, I mean, it's, it's so Downton Abbey. But it's actually much darker than Downton Abbey in some ways. Um, but I, I love that film because the camera just plants you in this crowded room at a big banquet or something with, you know, the typical families that are falling apart and um, vying for power, etc. 
and uh, I mean, succession is its own version of this as well, right? And uh, and you, you just you, you can choose which characters you're going to pay attention to. You can choose what, and a lot of conversations are happening all at once, and the the microphones are sort of tracking all these different conversations at once. And I'll never forget sitting in the theater the first time for Gosford Park. I went back several times because every time I watched it, it felt like a different movie. Every time I could track a different relationship or pay attention to a different place in the room or something. And those long takes and so many different people acting completely convincingly and you having to choose what to pay attention to. It was like, wow, this is, this is like being in a classroom after class when everybody's talking, you know, um, Sometimes I'll be having a conversation in a classroom, but what I'm actually paying attention to is another conversation across the room. Um, uh, and the movie actually felt like that. And I came out of that thinking, man, that 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 movie was such a soap opera in its narrative and such an Agatha Christie murder mystery on another level. But I have this feeling that I was really there, you know, and that that rarely happens in a film. Um, um Another of my favorite directors is the the brothers that are the um, the the Darden brothers from Belgium. They're, they're so it's so fascinating to me. There's so many filmmaking teams of brothers. I'm looking for like a filmmaking team of sisters, and I haven't really seen that yet. But you've got the Cohen brothers, you know, and you've got the Russo brothers, and you've got the Darden brothers and the Key brothers. The the Darden brothers um, are the most awarded filmmakers in the world right now. And they, they make very, very naturalistic films with really long takes. And the characters talk the way real people do, which means they aren't constantly explaining things to the audience. I was just laughing all the way through Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness last night because of how often the characters had to explain things to the audience. You know, they they would travel somewhere and they'd arrive and somebody would like announce the name of the place. And I'm like... Yeah, you were all headed there. I mean, why why do you have to do this? Um, in the Darden Brothers films, nobody explains anything to anybody unnecessarily. And so that leaves you... It actually develops suspense because you're leaning forward, trying... You, you care about the main crisis of the film, but you're trying to understand what people are thinking. And they are not giving it away. Um, my favorite film of theirs... Here, I'll some show and tell for the... Uh, for the podcast audience um my favorite film of theirs is called the sun and i'm holding this up because it's really hard to get this dvd it's out of print and i if i if i was having financial trouble i would probably try and sell this and i would do very well um the sun is just about a carpentry teacher who is a very private person and he's just teaching a whole lot of boys who have been in a lot of trouble and are probably coming out of you know detention or, or jail or something and he's trying to teach them a trade so they have a second chance at life and and something useful in the world but for the first like half an hour of the movie you're watching this carpentry teacher you know he's probably mid 50s late 50s you know he's got a bald spot he's not appealing to anybody he's wearing a big back brace around his overalls he and he has really thick glasses and that keeps us from seeing his eyes which keep him emotionally separated from us we can't quite get a connection with this guy and he's following these boys around a, a carpentry studio and you're, there's all this noise so you're you're bracing for some horrible accident to happen because you hear a lot of saws and you see boys climbing ladders and you're like something terrible is going to happen you're ready for all the predictable stuff 
And then he starts following this one boy around, and he's not talking. And he's looking at him very intensely. And then the boy, like, goes off around a corner into the locker room and lies down and goes to sleep. And this man comes into the locker room, and he, like, looks around the corner at this boy for a very long time. And everyone in the audience, their nerves are just being shredded because they totally think this guy is, like, a pedophile or something. They're, they're, they're expecting a horrible crime to happen. And there comes a point where you sort of turn a corner in the narrative and somebody visits him at his apartment. That's this woman who has connections with him from the past. And she's sort of checking in on him. And you suddenly start to get a glimmer of what's actually going on with this guy and what his history is and why he's concerned about these boys and why he's particularly concerned about this boy. And it becomes such a beautiful story about someone who has been so deeply wounded and yet he's trying to do the right thing he's trying to do the right thing and once you start figuring out what's actually happening then you're leaning in for a whole other whole different reason because you're like the world is just conditioned to misunderstand this guy but he's actually really trying to do the right thing and i man i i love how that film breaks all of the the conventions that we're used to with movies and and really asks us to to look closely at each other and try and understand each other try and understand all of the stuff that's not being said all the motivations uh, that are compelling our rather suspicious behavior and um man it's it's just a master class in how to make a movie and most of the techniques they're using are just lost on american audiences and filmmakers so I don't know if I get my way, maybe someday I'll teach a class on the Dardenne brothers at SP, but um, I've used that film in writing 1100. And uh, I love watching the class watch that movie because I know what's coming and they're all sitting through those long takes and they're all starting to think, oh no, this guy is a horrible criminal. And you can just see them like looking for the door and wondering if they should flee the classroom. And then that scene comes when that suggests a new possibility and everyone's like, now they're doubly interested because this is going somewhere they weren't expecting. Um, that's that's what I really admire about a director. But sort of like you said, you know, you said you'd never really thought about thought about paying attention to a director's mm -hmm. the director's names, and I, I didn't either until I started getting excited about seeing the name Spielberg on something, or seeing the name Jim Henson on something. You know, I loved Sesame Street, and then I loved The Muppet Show, and then I loved The Muppet Movie, and then there there was a fantasy movie coming, and I loved the hobbit and i loved narnia and suddenly henson's name was on a fantasy movie coming and so was george lucas's name and star wars my, was my other big obsession so to think that the guy who made the muppets and the guy who made star wars were going to do a fantasy movie together i mean the dark crystal even before the movie came out it was it was the biggest deal in the world to me because of the director's names so from that point on i started paying attention um, um so you know, now I'm looking back at the shelf. Spielberg, Soderbergh, Scorsese, um, Kubrick. Uh, I haven't even mentioned the Coen brothers yet, and I love everything they have done. Uh, Miyazaki, oh my goodness, we could do a whole hour on that, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's, there's anime, great. And then there's, you know, Studio Ghibli, great. But then there's Studio Ghibli, Miyazaki. And suddenly a crowd gathers, right? Because we've learned to trust him. Uh, we learn we're getting real, something really special with him. So, does anybody else spring to mind besides Flanagan or? 
don't know because that's the thing it it's just i feel like i just need to watch like i have a movie podcast and i need to watch more movies to be completely honest because <laughs> like yeah that's the thing i i definitely especially before coming to college before because i feel like college is the first time i've really had the chance to like you know try and figure out my own taste in media because i feel like i don't know just with how i grew up generally it was just i watch what um my parents like um and i didn't have a huge i just i don't know if i i didn't really like take the initiative or just you know didn't feel like i had the space to like kind of figure out what i wanted to you know like enjoyed and wanted to watch like myself and so Mm -hmm. i feel like i'm kind of doing that now for the first time that i'm in college so no i don't really think i have anyone um that i can identify and latch on to and be like yeah that's someone that's a big like influencer i really really like so yeah well it's i mean one of the one of the things i appreciate about marvel is that they're giving they, more and more they're giving really talented directors opportunities to try a marvel movie mm-hmm. so while i'm not a fan of eternals i hope that eternals will inspire some people to watch some chloe Zhao movies i hope that mm-hmm. doctor strange and the multiverse of madness will inspire people to go back and watch sam raimi movies because he's made a lot of really interesting movies um including spider-man 2 which is one of for me one of the top two or three superhero movies ever made um but he's also made non-superhero movies that are really really interesting um like a simple plan um or oh let's see he has a really crazy horror movie called drag me to hell that i'm not sure i'm going to recommend but it is hilarious um and there are others too that if um you know I, i'd really like i'd really like to see um well, I'd, I'd really encourage people to see uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, the other multiverse movie that's out right now, uh, because that's not a Marvel movie, and it actually does, I think, far more interesting things with the idea of a multiverse than um, the Doctor Strange movie I saw last night. I feel disloyal, by the way, if I criticize a Doctor Strange movie. You know, <laughs> I feel like I'm probably related in some way. But um, anyway, there, I, I love it when they, they sort of tease audiences with these uh sort of some people would say gateway drugs to uh to great directors work um there's been so much ridiculous uh controversy about you know martin scorsese versus marvel (laughs) oh give me a break i mean comic book fans loved the movie joker but joker was built on the template of martin scorsese's film taxi driver we wouldn't have the joker movie if it wasn't for Mm -hmm. scorsese so um i hope that that gets people to discover what he's doing because he's made all kinds of movies um movies for kids like hugo and documentaries about bob dylan and um (laughs) um gangster movies uh, are what he's most famous for but he's done incredibly romantic historical films like the age of innocence which is like a you know it's like a jane austen kind of story um so there's yeah there's Oh, there's so many we could talk about. I haven't even mentioned the name that comes up the most in conversations with Christians about art film. Um, so just just to say I did it, I'm not going to say his name. Um, <laughs> but if you uh, but if you haven't seen the Tree of Life, you should. Um, <laughs> all right, that maybe that maybe I ruined it right there. <laughs> See, that does. Gonna, yeah. I'm just gonna say that does um bring me to kind of when you're talking about marvel a little bit something that i was 
interested in bringing up and then we'll wrap this up um pretty quick here i do think like coming i've thought about a lot you know with marvel movies in relation to kind of how those are approached with like different directors Mm -hmm. i just i feel like sometimes at least for me i'm interested to see what you think about this sometimes something can be a little i don't know dissonant like between like with characters specifically because in movie series like that i feel like we saw a little bit of this with um like star wars like you know some recent star wars movies with being i I knew this was gonna come up from different directors um i don't know i'm just curious to see like you know kind of what you think about like kind of how the the impact of that with the series handing it off between so many different directors like how that impacts narrative like cohesion and the character like arcs and stuff like that yeah well one of i mean it was going to it was bound to come up um one of the reasons i am very pro ryan johnson uh who made the last jedi the single most controversial Star Wars <laughs> movie um is because um, a real artist is not interested in just giving the audience what they want. Mm-hmm. A real a real artist is not just interested in saying, what's popular, I want to do that and do it well. And a lot of Marvel movies are far more concerned with giving the audience what they want than they are with challenging the audiences to grow by introducing them to new ideas. And if you're going to mm-hmm. do that, you have to deny the audience what they want. Uh, Ryan Johnson did what I think um, uh, George Lucas was actually doing when he when he worked with other artists in a very collaborative effort on The Empire Strikes Back, uh, which was to take the, the formulaic good guys versus bad guys. Uh, the good guys are the ones who make the fancy shot at the end of the movie and blow up the bad guys. Hooray! You know, The Empire Strikes Back undercuts all of that by saying there's not so much difference between the bad guys and the good guys. In fact, they are, they are um, inseparably linked. Um, and in fact, the bad guys are um, what the good guys could become if they're not careful. And the bad guys, are, our goal should not be the destruction of the bad guys, but the redemption of the bad guys. Because if you're focused on destroying the bad guys, you are using the, to- the, the tools of evil to destroy evil, which just ultimately perpetuates and invites more evil. So what I love about the original Star Wars series is that it builds to a moment when the hero puts down his sword and reaches out mm-hmm. to the villain. That, to me, is that's storytelling that undercuts what the audience has, has shown up to see. I mean, back then we had to wait three years for the next chapter of something. And waiting three years to find out if Han Solo could breathe and all that carbonite was difficult. Um, but then you get there and, and you're, you're ready to see the defeat of Darth Vader. And what you see is the, the redemption of Darth Vader. That was unexpected. And that taught me to want to be surprised, to want something other than what I want, if that makes sense. So Ryan Johnson comes along with The Last Jedi, and J.J. Abrams has set up a classic, the guys in the white hats and the guys in the black hats, the um, just the kind of binary thinking that certainly is good for the box office, but is not good for storytelling. And he complicated things by eliminating this new villain they'd set up fairly early in the movie which just made everybody go what is happening 
And um, I mean, I think the audience wanted a romance between uh, Kylo Ren and Rey um, on some level all along. So he at least sort of steered the movie in that direction, but possibly, possibly for the redemption of Kylo Ren eventually. Um, but he also elevated the roles of women in, in Star Wars. A lot of the leaders in, in, in um, not Return of the Jedi, um, The Last Jedi were women. And that was um, something that had been lacking in Star Wars storytelling. He took the simplistic idea of the hero, um, the maverick hero, which Oscar Isaac was basically playing in The Last Jedi, and kind of zoomed in on that idea and said this could be a disaster i mean if you just let somebody break all the rules and think that's the way to go you're 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 making you're, you're inviting all kinds of trouble so he gave a very wise leader a chance to sort of lecture the maverick hero on the dangers of that and this goes against what people who want movies just to satisfy their baser appetites so to speak that goes against uh, that impulse and says we can we can be better we can grow we can learn we can discover new possibilities so I really wish they had given him more Star Wars storytelling but it wasn't as popular at the box office it wasn't as pop popular with audiences of course it wasn't if you change the recipe of coca-cola brace yourself uh, you might have made it more nutritious but people are stuck on what they like um, so I think creating dissonance is actually good for audiences so long as it's not dissonance for dissonance's sake so long as it's not just changing things up to be audacious i mean you can really ruin a story if you introduce contradictions you can really ruin a story if a character's nature change changes without any explanation um but the great novels and the great work are stories about change and are stories in which characters train, change dramatically and are stories that challenge audiences' expectations. Television is built on the idea that when you come back to when you come back to the show you love, it's going to give you what you came back for. TV is getting better in that it is challenging expectations more and more. Series like Russian Doll, series like uh, Breaking Bad, series like The Wire, they are they are proving that you can make great art on television but it's probably never going to be the most popular stuff um, because uh, because it asks us to to learn something um, and there's there's a lot of the population that just wants things to be the way they used to be or the way they think the way they remember them not not something new they don't want to see the neighborhood change and they don't want to see their their franchises change so I'm really hopeful with this new wave of directors in the, in the MCU that we'll see more challenging storytelling. I can't say I saw that last night, unfortunately, <laughs> watching Multiverse of Madness. Um, but my favorite Marvel movies are the ones that really do challenge us to think about something. Black, Black Panther was a great example of that. I think the original Doctor Strange was because the ending of that movie is so different from the ending of so many other Marvel movies in uh, the nature of the way that they deal with the villain. Um, anyway, I could tell you a story about the choices Scott Derrickson made at the end of Doctor Strange, but I'll save that for another time. 
go go watch the movie and and think about how that film ends differently than the other ones. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, well, I think I think that's um, a great way to end and wrap up this episode. Thank you again so much for yeah. um, joining me. This was a very fun conversation. <laughs> yeah, it was to be continued. Uh, thanks, Emma, and I, you're doing a great job. Thanks for uh, thanks. Th- thanks for asking good questions and uh, coming with great examples too. Because now you've reminded me, I do need to find the time to watch Midnight Mass. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, me too. So like, we're in the same boat with that. But um, yeah, well, and thank you, everyone for listening. This has been Limelight, the Falcon Film Podcast. Uh, Bye. Bye.